0: Welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about *Rasselas* by Samuel Johnson. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Shearston Hall-Hurlin, a former English professor at Ave Maria University and managing editor of the academic journal Genealogies of Modernity. She podcasted with us previously on Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, and she joins us now by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Sherston, welcome back to The Great Books Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, John.
0: Why is *Rasselas* by Samuel Johnson a great book?
1: Well, I'll start off with a quote first. So this is a friend's remark about *Rasselas* that James Boswell, who is Johnson's famous biographer and his friend, included in the biography. So the friend said that Rasselas is impressive truth in splendid fiction dressed, checks the vain wish and calms the troubled breast. I love this this quote, this assessment, um, because it puts me in mind of the saying that it's the job of good fiction and great fiction to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I don't think that I've encountered any book that does both of those things at the same time um, better than Johnson's Rasselas. So, for any listeners who have read Rasselas before, maybe who have read Boswell's biography of Johnson or any of his other writings, will know that the experience of reading Johnson is not always really a walk in the park. Johnson was famously melancholic, and also had an acute sense for human vice human failure and the many ways that people deceive themselves and deceive others. And actually one contemporary reader of Johnson called Rasselas a black diamond, um, a jewel that has been disfigured by the author's melancholy. Um, so if you don't kind of walk away exactly cheered by an encounter with Rasselas, I do think that you walk away feeling heartened and fortified. There, there is a, a kind of radical honesty and, and courage in the way that Johnson faces and examines some of the harsher realities of life and i think it's it's a kind of contagious courage you feel you feel more courageous yourself for having read johnson there's also i think a pretty powerful sense of charity and hope that tempers that pessimism and it gives gives the effect to the reader that they too are not alone and that they have a kind of companion walking with them through the kind of trials that life offers. And, you know, I think Johnson would say, "What what is the purpose of, of great literature if not to help us live and to kind of get us through life?
0: We're going to talk about all of that. What's in this strange little book from 1759? It's characters the story it tells, to the extent that it even tells a story, its lessons, its fascinating author, and a lot more. Shirsten, let's start at the beginning. And when this book, Rassilus, begins, we meet Prince Rassilus, who is basically a royal hostage in a pleasure palace. Who is he and what's going on?
1: That's right. So uh, Rassilus is the fourth son of the emperor of Abyssinia, and you're right that he's essentially held hostage in this place called the Happy Valley. It's uh, closed off by a gate and it's surrounded by mountains. But the thing about the Happy Valley is why would you want to leave it, right? It's it's a paradise. It's got lush forests, lots of animals, fruits, beautiful kind of flowering gardens. There are constantly festivals of dance and music. Um, and, and Johnson tells us, that in the Happy Valley, all of your possible desires and needs are met, right? Every desire was immediately granted.
0: Shearson, when I hear the name Happy Valley, I think of Penn State football and and State College, Pennsylvania. This Happy Valley is set in Abyssinia. And in fact, the full title of this work, as you know, is The History of Rosalus, Prince of Abyssinia. It's commonly just called Rosalus. But what is Abyssinia and what role does it play in this book?
1: Yeah, so Abyssinia is the name for, you know, what is today uh, modern Ethiopia. And so the question is, you know, why did Johnson set this story in Abyssinia? And the answer is uh, kind of twofold. Um, So first, Johnson's interest in Abyssinia and in travel and kind of learning about other cultures, especially non-European cultures was lifelong. So in fact, the first book that he ever published was an abridged translation of Father Lobo's Voyage to Abyssinia. Um, That was in 1735. So in that book, right, you learn a lot about the history, about the culture of this region. Um, The other reason is that these kind of Eastern tales were very popular in the 18th century and Johnson had had some success in his periodical called The Rambler, where he offers these kind of short sketches about, um, there's one in particular about an Ethiopian prince. Um, But I also think that most importantly, Johnson is part of this humanist tradition that is very interested in studying the nature of man and the nature of mankind kind of in its totality. When you pick up Rasselas, you might expect, right, this is going to be an adventure story. It's going to be set in an exotic locale far away. But once you actually start reading it, you realize that you're, you're looking at yourself in the mirror. So I think Johnson does kind of really beautifully in Rasselas what he praised in Shakespeare, which is the ability to approximate the, the remote and to familiarize the wonderful. Right. So Johnson is interested in studying universal human nature and in kind of distinguishing between custom and, and and nature, the things that we all share in common, even if we live in radically different cultures in different parts of the world.
0: So Rasselas, our title character, is the son of the king, and we find him in this exotic faraway place called Abyssinia, and in particular in the Happy Valley, which sounds really wonderful. I'd love to live in the Happy Valley, but Rasselas is unhappy.
1: That's right. So he finds himself at the beginning of the book in a pretty absurd situation, um, which is that he is unhappy in the Happy Valley, right? Even though he has everything he could possibly want, he's still not satisfied. And so he says things like, pleasure has ceased to please, right? So that's the kind of opening predicament of the book. And he decides, right, if I can't be happy here, happiness must be found somewhere else. So he decides to try to escape from the Happy Valley.
0: And that proves to be difficult.
1: Yes. It actually ends up taking him about two years to get out.
0: And he tries different things. One of his first attempts is to fly his way out of the Happy Valley.
1: Yeah, so the Happy Valley... um, it kind of brings together people from all over who are talented in various ways, whether it's in um, music or engineering or some kind of invention. So he meets this kind of engineer, this um, mechanic who has done all sorts of things and created all of these cool inventions to improve life around the Happy Valley. So he's pretty accomplished. And he, Rasselas learns from him that he's trying to make um, like a flying contraption, these like bat wings to enable man to fly. And this is, you know, a resounding failure. As soon as, you know, he puts the, the the mechanic puts the wings on, he jumps off a precipice and immediately plunges into the water.
0: So that's a failure. And, and at the same time, he's also getting warnings about what lies beyond the valley. Don't even try to escape. It's not worth it, says a poet he meets.
1: That's right. Yeah. So he has, you know, a few people who tell him if you think that life is better outside the Happy Valley in the real world, think again, right? The world is filled with dangers and is filled with miseries. And if you would only experience that, you would know how good you have it here. And so, much to the confusion of some of the inhabitants, he says, well, if the, you know, if the sight of misery is necessary to to my happiness, I want to go out and experience that myself.
0: And that's a philosophical point. And that leads yes. to a question about the the genre of this work. It has a story, sort of, but it also feels in a lot of ways like a philosophical track that the philosophy is more important than the drama. We're more interested in what the characters say and think than in what they do. Shearson does does it have a plot? Is it fiction? Is it A novel? Is it something else?
1: Gosh, this is such a good question. It gets really complicated. People have been dissecting and debating the genre of *Rasselas* for as long as it has been published. Um, Some people have called it a moral fable or a philosophical romance, a satire, uh, even a novel. Uh, It also doesn't help that in the letter to his publisher, Johnson simply calls it a thing that he's preparing for the press, so it's not even <laughs> clear if Johnson um, knew, you know, how to categorize this this weird little book.
0: In our last conversation for this podcast series, we discussed Robinson Crusoe, which is sometimes described as the world's first novel. Familiar story. You did a great show on it with us, and there are other candidates for world's first novel, but it's sometimes called that. This book comes a, a generation later. So help us understand, to what extent is it a novel? Is it not a novel? What even is a novel?
1: Yeah, so one just kind of quick fun fact that I'd, I'd love to share. Uh, there were only three books, according to Johnson, uh, that he said that he enjoyed so much that he wished they were longer. Uh, one was Don Quixote, the other was The Pilgrim's Progress, and the third was Robinson Crusoe. So just a nice kind of little connection there. Yeah, so the question of what is a novel, that's, it's, it's fairly complicated, but just to make it really simple, a novel, as it develops in the 18th century, is basically a long prose fiction work that is distinguished from the older genre of romance by its realism. And again, realism becomes really, really complicated, but if we just want to make it super simple... Instead of offering larger-than-life kind of idealized characters in fantastic or enchanted settings like we have with romance, the realist novels of the 18th century attempted to offer what kind of purported to be an authentic account of the actual everyday experience of individuals. Um, Johnson himself was a kind of theorist of the novel and wrote a famous essay in his periodical uh, called The Rambler, and so the way he defines this kind of new species of writing that was becoming popular was that it it's it's supposed to exhibit life in its true state, diversified only by accidents that happen daily in the world and influenced by the passions and qualities which are really to be found in conversing with mankind. Um, so that, I think, is a, a kind of quick definition of what the novel is. Uh, you know, did Johnson write a, a novel in Rasselas? I think... It's a mix. And I think it registers his ambivalence about what this new form could do in the book. So on one hand, it's set in a faraway place, right? It's not set in contemporary England like many of the novels in the 18th century were. He also makes no attempt to kind of individualize his characters. If you read Rasselas, something that you'll notice is that all of the characters sound exactly alike. And they all sound exactly like Johnson. So there's this wonderful assessment from a contemporary of Johnson who said, um, you know, I never read the words of Nakaya, the princess who's Rassilus' sister, that I I see the the great Johnson before me in my mind wearing petticoats, right? So Nikaia is kind of Johnson in disguise, right? Wearing these petticoats.
0: So it's probably worth remembering that the novel as a form is being invented during this period. And Johnson's maybe participating in this, but we're we're so familiar with the novel today as a form. These people were making it up as they went along. And so Rosalus has this connection to the novel, although it's not a completely comfortable connection. And let's return now to to the story because, because you're starting to mention some of the other characters and and we left Rosalus in, in the happy Valley, still stuck in the happy Valley, trying to escape at his flying machine, doesn't work, but he, but he forms this, this posse then to get out. We have some, several characters involved in this. Shearson, tell us what happens. What do they do? How do they eventually escape the happy Valley?
1: Yeah. So in the two years that Rasselas is trying to get out of the happy Valley, he encounters um, one really important character. His name is Imlac. Imlac um, did not grow up in the happy Valley. He's um, from outside. He's a lot older then he's widely traveled, he's a poet, Um, his father was a merchant, and he traveled the world kind of in search of knowledge. But he eventually grew tired of travel, he went back home, and he faced so many setbacks that, you know, kind of weary of the world, he decided to retire to the Happy Valley. And of course, once you're in the Happy Valley, you can't leave. So Rassilus discovers that Imlac is also discontented in the Happy Valley. So they decide together to escape it. So what they do is um, they actually end up kind of tunneling through the mountains and creating a passage that allows them to escape. And then at this point, they meet another important character named Nikaya. And Nikaya is a princess of Abyssinia, so she's one of Rassilus' sisters. And Rassilus also discovers, again, Nikaya is discontented. Um, and so she wants to go with them out in, into the world to kind of search for the way of life, um, the choice of life uh, that will be most conducive to happiness. So it's really this this trio, Rassilus, Imlac, and Nikaya, accompanied also by um, Nikaya's companion, whose name is Pekawa.
2: This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people... Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down and American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. And so these four characters now get out of the happy Valley. Exactly. How do
0: they do it? And then what do they find once they are outside the happy Valley? Yes.
1: Yeah, so they, they tunnel through the mountain. Um, then they eventually travel to Cairo and the whole objective of this journey. It's really, it's really a pilgrimage or, or a kind of quest. So at this point, the, the novel or the story becomes much more episodic and, So their goal is to search out the way of life that will bring them the most happiness. So they go and talk to different people in the city, right? They talk to a philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, and it turns out he's unhappy, right? So they say, well, maybe philosophy is not the way to go. Maybe we should just go have fun with the kind of young men about town. Also turns out that they are not happy, and they say, well, maybe if we try rural life as opposed to city life, maybe that's where we'll find happiness. And so they kind of go through um, kind of exploring these, these opposites. Is marriage going to make them happy? Possibly not. Is the single life going to make them happy? Once again, the answer is no, right? So they, they keep encountering these different ways of life and realize that there are problems with all of them.
0: So are we doomed to unhappiness? Is that Samuel Johnson's melancholic point in *Rosalus*?
1: Yeah. So again, this is this is really kind of the crux of of the story. So Johnson, right? He is a moralist, and in one of his periodical essays, Johnson said that the kind of prime duty, the major question that a moralist is after, is the question of how man is made happy. And how man became discontented with himself. And I think that there is a kind of core conviction that emerges from this book. But the conviction is not so much a solution to the question of how we become happy. It's it's more the problem associated with that. And so the conviction is that there is no way of life, there is no thing in this life that will completely fill the cup of our happiness. And the, the sort of paradox he explores is that we are only ever happy when we are, are in pursuit of happiness. But as soon as we grasp the thing that we thought would make us happy, we're looking for the next thing. right? So Johnson is very interested in the kind of insatiability of the human heart and the restlessness of human desire This kind of reality that, that there's nothing that ever really seems to make us happy.
0: It sounds like the cliche that it's the journey, not the destination.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's a, a big part of it. And so, of course, the question that you're asking as you're continuing to read *Rasselas* and journeying with these characters is, okay, Johnson, if this is, if this is what you want us to get out of it, right? That, that there's nothing that will ever make us fully happy, then what do we do about that?
0: So what destination does he have in mind, do you think?
1: Yeah, so again, this is kind of a, a subject of debate. There are a lot of kind of 20th century readers and scholars who think that this is essentially um, a deeply kind of skeptical work. That when Nikaya says, the more we inquire, the less we resolve, that that is essentially the thesis that Johnson doesn't really um help us find a way out of this this absurd predicament that we desire happiness but that there is nothing that will make us happy.
0: There's another way of looking at it though, isn't there?
1: There there absolutely is and this this comes up several times over the course of of the story, but it's it's the choice of not life but of eternity. So Nikaya towards the end of the book says, you know, hereafter I I hope to think not on the choice of of life that is not so important so much as it is um, the choice of eternity, and and Boswell I think who is a in in some ways a careful reader of Johnson the way that he interprets Rasselas is that Johnson wanted to show the unsatisfactory nature of things temporal to direct the hopes of man to things eternal. Right. So that there's nothing on this earth that will make us happy, but we have we have this desire and we have hope because this leads us to heaven, where we can live in eternal felicity.
0: So that sounds at least vaguely Christian. Is Rosalis a Christian work? Is that a good way to think about it?
1: I think it is. Again, this is a kind of matter of debate. I think you know, everything that we know about Johnson's life, his biography, as well as his other writings points to the fact that he was a devout Christian, which is not to say that he didn't experience profound doubt, right? The 18th century, this is the age of the Enlightenment, this is the age of kind of skepticism and the rise of, of philosophic atheism. And so one of Johnson's kind of main opponents was David Hume. And he, and he says, you know, look, I thought about every attack that Hume levels against Christianity, I thought about it well before he he wrote it all down. But Johnson, kind of in spite of his doubt, continues to have faith, um, and I and I think that that Rasselas is an expression of that. Right? It's filled with doubt. It's filled with this kind of skepticism. Um, but I think in the end, it is a it is a Christian work.
0: We probably should say a word about Samuel Johnson, the man, born in 1709, died in 1784, one of the great figures of the 18th century. Shirsten, who was this guy? What's his accomplishment? Separate from Rossellus, what's his accomplishment? What's his legacy? What are the things he did? Who was he?
1: He's considered to be one of the giants of English literary history, his most famous accomplishment. Um, was that he wrote the first dictionary. Um, there were other dictionaries in England, um, before he wrote his dictionary, but dictionaries were essentially just wordless or they would have very simplistic definitions. Like my favorite example is in one of the earlier dictionaries, the definition of a horse is a beast well-known, right? It's kind of an anti-definition. Um, (laughs) So Johnson, almost single-handedly with a team of kind of scribes, writes the first dictionary in, in nine years. And just to put it in perspective, the French Academy was working on their dictionary at the same time, or around the same time. And it took them about 40 years with 40 people working to produce their, their dictionary. And, and Johnson did it single-handedly. So this is his, his kind of great accomplishment. Um, And he's so kind of era defining that the mid kind of to late 18th century is commonly known as the age of Johnson. Um, The other interesting thing about Johnson, aside from his his contribution to the world of letters, is that he's also famous as a personality, um, partly because he is the subject of one of the great biographies ever written, uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson, which was published after his death.
0: Sure. And I should say we've done a show on the life of Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. It was episode number 139 in this in this podcast series. But Sherson, how much does Johnson's legacy owe then to his biographer, James Boswell?
1: It's, it's kind of a mixed legacy. Boswell presents kind of a, a certain view of Johnson. For example, Johnson was a Tory, Boswell was also a Tory, and so Boswell tends to play up and kind of romanticize Johnson's Toryism. He also presents a kind of very masculine version, right? This is the Johnson of conversation and of the club, and we don't always see kind of other parts of Johnson's life that other people um, saw more often, like his, his kind of domestic life. And you get the impression reading Boswell's life of Johnson that they actually spent a lot of time together. When in reality, Boswell didn't meet Johnson until Johnson was in his early fifties and the 21 years or so that they knew each other afterwards, you can kind of count up and, and scholars have done this. You can count up the number of days that they actually spent together. And so in those 20 years, they only spent just about a year and a half together together. In person. Um, So that's, you know, maybe the downside of of Boswell's legacy to Johnson. But the upside is that we have this incredibly rich um, portrait, right? Boswell had an incredible memory. He was diligent about kind of recording conversations that they had in, in his diaries. And he also has this wonderful dramatic flair. So I think he does a really amazing job of kind of bringing Johnson as a figure to life. And if Boswell hadn't written the biography, a lot of that probably would have been lost.
0: One of the legends that surrounds Johnson and Rosalis is that he wrote it to pay for his mother's funeral. Is that, is that true?
1: It's, it's mostly true. That was kind of the result, but not the exact intent. Um, so the real story is that in 1759, um, Johnson received word that his mother was seriously ill. And it's helpful to remember that Johnson lived most of his life kind of on the edge, if not over the edge of poverty, right? So he was kind of always hustling, always writing to make money. And so he needed money in order to travel out to Litchfield from London where he was living to help pay his mother's medical expenses, So he arranged with his publisher, who's kind of a a good friend of his at that point, to send him in a week or two this short philosophical Eastern tale. And so Johnson spent the evenings of one week writing Rasselas. So he wrote it quickly. It's arguably the classic that has the claim to being the fastest written classic work. And so as he was finishing or shortly after he finished, we don't know the exact timeline, Johnson found out that his mother had already died and that they had had the funeral. So it ended up paying for his, his mother's funeral expenses.
0: Now let's return to restless itself. We've got to wrap up how this little book finishes the last chapter Of After these characters have have left the Happy Valley, they're they're in Cairo, they're, they're learning about how everyone is unhappy. The last chapter then, which is short, there's so many short chapters, this one's really short, is called The Conclusion, in which nothing is concluded. And there's this big flood of the Nile River, the characters find themselves stranded, and they describe their various schemes of happiness, what, what they've learned, what they plan to do, this sort of thing. And the final lines of Rosalus are this, quote, of these wishes that they had formed, they well knew that none could be obtained. They deliberated a while what was to be done and resolved when the inundation should cease to return to Abyssinia. And so that's how it finishes. What are we to make of this conclusion?
1: This is a kind of famously vexing ending. Some people read this as evidence of Johnson's ultimate skepticism, right, that he doesn't really offer any kind of solution to the predicament he's laid out. Um, There is some evidence or rumors while Johnson was alive that he intended to write a continuation and that he had probably finished the book more abruptly than he intended when he first set out to write it. Now, of course, we don't actually have a continuation. He never, never wrote it. One way that I find it helpful to kind of approach this, this ending is to kind of think about what has changed since the beginning. Have these characters learned anything? Where, where does this book leave them? And I think that the answer is that things have changed, right? So they have set out into the world, leaving the Happy Valley, trying to make this choice of life. And I think by the end of the book, they have set aside that question, right? They've realized that there's no single way of life that will make them perfectly happy. And and so I think we should kind of take that realization in light of a comment that Imlac, the poet, makes earlier in the book, which is a warning, right? That while you are making the choice of life, you neglect to live, so I think one way of reading the ending that that is, that is hopeful is that they have set aside this kind of neglect of their lives by investigating different choices and that by returning, they have chosen to live, right? They have committed themselves to kind of embarking on a particular plan. And I think Johnson realized that, and this is one of his great themes, is the Gulf the inevitable gulf between our, our kind of hopes and our plans and the execution, the kind of results of our plans when we actually set them in motion. And the, the mechanic who creates the flying machine, right? He's, he's the motif of that, right? He has this great idea of what he's going to do. And then when he does it, it fails. And I think because Johnson said, there's no way of being perfectly happy in this world we're all kind of set up for failure, but we have to persevere in spite of that, because suffering, this kind of suffering that comes through experience, and actually the word experience means, it comes from the Latin ex periculo, through danger, or through suffering, right? And Johnson says in one of his other periodical essays that it is through suffering that the heart of man is purified and is made ready for heaven, so I think that by committing to a way of life, by not deferring not deferring the choice of life, that that this is actually a moment of, of hope for these characters, that they have, in fact, kind of made the choice of eternity and made that more important than the choice of life itself.
0: How did you discover Rosalus as a work of literature and come to enjoy it to the point where you like to share it with students?
1: Yeah, so I first encountered it when I myself was a college student. It was actually with... Lorraine Murphy. I've heard of um, her. Yeah, she's appeared as a guest in this podcast before and we read it in her her survey of English literature class. And I will admit that I I struggled with the book and while we were reading it, and I think really I was too much like Rasselas at that point who is still kind of confident of unmingled prosperity, right? It's the kind of plight of youth and And so I didn't kind of feel deep in my core, the the kind of ideas that the Johnson is examining. But even then I had the sense that I was in the presence of a great mind and that, you know, with age and with time, I would, I would hopefully kind of come to appreciate this book in a deeper sense. And over the years, I think that's been true. I, you know, I find myself kind of with Boswell thinking, that I'm not satisfied if a year passes without having read it. So it's really been kind of a, a sort of balm for the soul as I've embarked on adult life.
0: One more question. It's more than 250 years old. What's the case for reading it now? Does it say something special to us in the, in the 2020s?
1: I'll just illustrate this with a story. A few months ago, I went to a talk that Arthur Brooks gave at UT, and the title of the talk was The Pursuit of Happiness in an Unhappy World. Um, So for listeners who don't know, Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard, and he writes the popular How to Build a Life column for The Atlantic. And so he's really made his career by explaining the science of happiness. So a lot of his writing and research draws on insights from psychology, behavioral science, um, philosophy, and neuroscience to define, you know, what happiness is and how we get it. And there was a moment in the talk where Arthur Brooks was defining this concept from behavioral psychology called the hedonic treadmill. And so the hedonic treadmill is the phenomenon where in extremes of emotion kind of return to equilibrium, and that our happiness tends to be pretty stable. So if we have something really good that happens to us, let's say you get a promotion at work, um, you feel this kind of immense joy, but the next day that joy wears off and you're kind of in search of the next promotion and that next kind of burst of happiness. And so as I was listening to Arthur Brooks talk about the hedonic treadmill, I of course thought immediately of, of restless, right? This is this is the central phenomenon he describes so that when Nikaya says that the state of life is one in which none are happy, but by the anticipation of change, right? That's what he's describing. So throughout Arthur Brooks's talk on happiness, I was realizing kind of how salient his, his work really is and how a lot of his insights um, that he had about 300 years ago are ones that are backed up now by the the latest research in psychology and and neuroscience. And so I couldn't help but think of the Greek, the kind of famous Greek epigram about Plato, right? In whatever direction we go, we find him returning on his way back. I think that's true of Johnson. I think that he was such a kind of close observer of human nature. He was so intent on kind of discovering the truth that he he observed life and was able to say some things about human nature that are true regardless of whether you live in eighteenth century London or twenty first century America. So I think for that that reason, right, Johnson is still asking questions and still examining problems that we have that we have today.
0: Sheerston Hall Herland, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Rosalis by Samuel Johnson.
1: Thank you, John. It's a pleasure as usual.
0: You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com. on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last fall, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.